it's helpful when you're collaborating with with someone in anything to have like some sort of established shorthand where you don't have to have certain conversations you just kind of understand what you're going for um, or understand each other you, you have that level um, so that can actually save a lot of time I always kind of get that feeling uh, when the Coen brothers talk yeah it's not even that they finish each other's sentences it's that they don't even need to complete their each other's sentences like I know they're like brothers who are an old married couple yes <laughs> yes I and mean, you gotta think it's and then Frances McDormand's there and she's like hello yeah. what is going on here yeah I I, th I actually probably think a little too much about what the Coen brothers like Thanksgiving is like. <laughs> Are there other Coen brothers that aren't the Coen brothers? Is there like a third oh, Coen brother? That's a question. <laughs> Jerry Cohen, who's just... <laughs> he's he's probably the one they're making fun of in all their movies. <laughs> he knows it. He knows it. I could have made movies. <laughs> Today, Laura DeCesar and Will Kurtz run out of things to say about the web series, and they just talk about YA novels. This is the Unreliable Narrator Theater Group's podcast. Uh, heard, or read an interview with Conan O'Brien recently, and he said that, you know, in today's comedy world, all our best comedy minds are uh, competing against a video of a cat who just fell into a toilet and we're losing. <laughs> and I kind of felt that way about, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff I've tried to do and a lot of the stuff that I see out there that people put a lot of effort in. There's a lot of intelligent people behind it, a lot of talented people behind it. Um, but the video you see most is invariably some kind of a cat falling into a toilet situation. Sometimes it's a dog falling <laughs> into a, a trash can. And every once in a while, it's a possum just falling <laughs> Falling, falling. It's funny because you listen to people talk about how the internet has, you know, ruined people socializing and it's made us all into hermits and all that nonsense. But we're sharing so many more of our thoughts than we ever did before with more people. So I don't know. I just don't buy into that whole the internet is evil trope. I'm trying to remember if this is a joke or an actual thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun game. <laughs> it is. I'm going to say it's an actual thing. Um, I heard somebody say, somebody post on Facebook, uh, right now I'm talking with a guy on Facebook and then coming into his room to do work every half hour or so. And when we're on Facebook, we're having a, a really deep conversation. And he's really sad. But when I go into the room, he's just, he's just very efficient and getting me the stuff I need. And I think he said, this is this is the most millennial thing that's ever millennial, <laughs> I believe. Like, do you think we'll reach a point where if uh, if we want to, like, unburden ourselves and really get close to somebody, we're going to be like, all right, go in the other room. I'm going on the, the keyboard. Maybe. I mean, I didn't know we were going to be getting all deep like this. <laughs> <Right>. but, uh... <laughs> no, we're going to be talking about giant Sorry. bunnies from outer space. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's this. like, no, we really need to talk. All right. <laughs> I don't even think oh, that's no new. I mean, I remember being nine or ten years old writing very, you know, scandalous notes to my mother about confessions, about horrible things that I've done and slipping it under the door. Like, you... <laughs> keep in mind, I was nine. It was something like I stole my brother's cookies. But <laughs> still, it's, you know, we've always, there are certain things that are easier to say when you write them out. And now we can, it's easier to do that in real time. That's right. I mean, the basic desire doesn't change. But uh, the technology does. Like, I remember 
when I was younger, I used to like take a Polaroid of a snack I made and I just like <laughs> mail it to like every one of my friends and family members and like people I knew in college and a random person I met at a party once and uh, some folks from my old work. Just kind of tangentially, mm -hmm. um, do you guys remember being made to read books in elementary school where the whole point was to like tell you what death was? And by the way, kids die sometimes. No. <laughs> what kind of horrible <laughs> school did you go to? So there, this happened a few times. There's this book, Shadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. Yes. Okay. I do remember that one. Yep. And it's, you know, this girl, it's post-World War II Japan. Yeah. And she has radiation uh, poisoning from yeah. the bomb. And she gets leukemia. And there's this old Japanese uh, tradition or legend or whatever that if you fold a thousand paper cranes, like origami paper cranes, uh, you can make a wish. So like her wish is she wants to live and she's like, so as she's in the hospital bed, she's making all these paper cranes and family members and friends come and they're all making paper cranes and they're like counting them and uh, it gives everyone hope. And then she dies yep, of leukemia and that's the end of the book. I always loved when the teachers read to you in the grade school days. And one book that my teacher read was Stone Fox. And... Um, in Stone Fox, th this kid is almost wins the uh, the race, and he's going to w use the prize money to save his grandfather's operation, or perhaps save his grandfather's land. One of the two. But his dog dies literally feet from the finish line. Oof. Literally feet. Uh, and Stone Fox is the Native American character who is on the outskirts of town because he's second and he always wins this. Stone Fox uh, takes a rifle because this is one of those books where everyone ha is heavily armed. Sure. Um, Stone Fox takes his rifle and he draws a line in the sand in front of uh, the kid and he says to the other racers, anybody crosses this line, I shoot. And he nods Jeez. at the kid and the kid is allowed to carry his dead dog across the finish line. <laughs> win the class, class prize and save his grandfather or possibly his grandfather's land. So I was the kid who cried. That was my slot. Why didn't everybody? <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. It's a dead dog. And then Stone Fox comes in and saves you? Right? That's, God. that's amazing. I actually do remember that story, hearing that uh -huh. one, yeah. So I think that must have been a pretty common one. It was. Um, I remember there was another story I read about. It was about a kid in Little League, and I was like enjoying it because it was like about a kid my age in Little League. And But then he also got cancer and died. You know what the Mouse and Motorcycle, whose name I believe was Ralph, was doing? And, Ralph uh, S. Mouse. Yes, and he was riding a motorcycle, and uh, Beverly Cleary would write the noise like P-P-P-P-P, which to me clearly <laughs> went like... <laughs> <laughs> I no? think it was supposed to be like... P -p 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 okay, so you guys are... Because I remember like reading it, and I just was like, clearly it's... Um, no, that's not how you spell... <laughs> But but then, like, I remember when uh, I had a teacher read it to me, and she made exactly the noise you guys were making. I was like, you are doing it wrong, and I was getting so mad. So I'm a little mad at you guys right now for doing it wrong, even if you are, in fact, right. You can be empirically wrong and not uh, accept it sometimes. Think of an actual motorcycle. Uh, does a motorcycle go like, P -p 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 -p? no, it goes like, 
Well, maybe you put it in the water. It does. <laughs> okay. But I might not be great at motorcycle impressions, but uh... there was a movie version of Mouse and the Motorcycle, and I, I believe when he made the noise there, it was. Which is way off. Yeah, that's like a cat noise. Yeah, more catty. Also, Beverly Cleary, a hundred three years old. Yeah, yeah, still alive today. Yeah, had had her hundred third birthday about a month ago. Yeah. Yeah, Bev. Excellent. So we should get her on the on the horn. You know, like why have you not adapted this? Can we do it? Yeah. What fascinates me about Wrinkle in Time, Madeleine LaEngel spoke about she had trouble getting uh, fantasy bookstores to cover it, to carry it, because they're like, this is kid stuff. Mm-hmm. We want to do serious things like The Hobbit and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the typical sort of nerd snobbery about Sorry, Wrinkle in Time is very serious. It is, but I always liked it. It's just a book to me. Like, the, I really liked the movie a lot, uh, a lot, but it was always going to be its own separate thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, just plain, I have vivid memories of rereading, like, the Tesseract sections where they hold, uh, they have drawings about how space is folded. And another thing it has is really silted dialogue. That's the thing that sort of makes it impossible to adapt. Because I think YA has gotten more, uh, I think there's an expectation that you're supposed to be sort of cool or at least sort of geekily cool. But the Regal of Time book is not cool. No. Uh, and it doesn't care that it's not cool. Yeah, it doesn't really have that snarky yeah. area. You're right. And Bob Colby told us one time that uh, Madeline LaEngel had a policy where it's like, there's no official play of The Wrinkle in Time, but what you could do is write to her, get the rights to commission a new piece. Your piece would be able to be produced uh, and then never again. Wow. I thought that was a great idea. and uh, So she'll let people write their own Wrinkle in Time play, yeah. but it's a one-time thing. That's, yeah. that's cool. And I, I actually, I checked out the book. I was like, maybe they'll let me do this. And I read it <laughs> I read it for 10 minutes. I was like, I can't do this. This is a Wrinkle in Time. It's so, <laughs> like, if I made it, I would just yeah. make it, like, snarky or, or postmodern or something. And it, it doesn't need that. It needs, it needs to be what it is. It would be hard to do on stage well because so much of it is visual. Uh-huh. And so much of the book is these worlds that are not real, and unless you had a budget, it would it would look kind of like backyard theater, which is you know it's a there's a <laughs> right. way to do that and make it you know own it and make it sort of just yeah. embrace it and but it would never really be as you know the scene where I, I think it's Mrs. Who the one that gets really really big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those kinds of things just wouldn't carry on stage. You know, I need an actor that's six times as tall as the other actor. You're, you're not going to get that. And it's, I feel like some things are really best left to the imagination. And there's a reason why literature exists as a non-visual medium. I was listening to some podcasters review it. And they, they had a real problem with, uh, I don't get it. So first Meg needs someone else to tesseract her. But by the end, she can tesser herself. I don't get it. Does she have some kind of bracelet or some kind of machine? Like, they were mad 
uh, that there was no section where Mrs. Who was like, and now, Meg, here is the tesserometer, which enables you to travel through time. No, it's but a only, skill. Exactly. She learns a skill. Learns a skill. Oh it was one of the moments where I, where you yell at the podcast you're listening yeah. to. It's like, you, you don't need that for a wrinkle in fucking time. A wrinkle in fucking time. A wrinkle I haven't fucking read that time. one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, the version made in the 70s. <laughs> that's only in a few libraries. But <laughs> a wrinkle in... Walter Matthau. <laughs> 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 just eating a hot dog while moving on for some reason. I don't know. The test react is like this hot dog bun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Uh, let me just get started here. Have you been onboarded? I was lying in bed at home daydreaming, and I thought I heard Elliot coming back. But it wasn't. It was three men in dumb masks who grabbed me before I could say anything, and they had a taser. It happened so fast, and I woke up here. That sounds like us. <laughs> but why me? We're not rich. What kind of ransom could you all want? Let me ask you this. Does your family have a Roth or a 401k? Yes. There you go. You're above average. I can't believe someone would go around kidnapping someone just for a 401k. Oh, we don't do kidnapping here. We don't know what that is. Let me ask you a question, Daniel. What are your top three complaints about the kidnapping business? Just tell me things. All right, all right. Please. A little impatient there. Well, the fact is, there are a lot of negatives associated with it. You know, tied to a chair, schizophrenics ranting in your face, ransom notes out of magazines. I don't want to go through that. Do you? Even the word kidnapping is a problem. Kid. I'm not a kid. Are you a kid? We want to get to know you as a complicated, flawed, fully human adult. And the nap? To be honest, I could go for a nap right now. How about you? (laughs) The word nap is British in origin, and it means to nab or seize. And I just don't think people should be nabbed or seized. It really highlights the involuntary nature of the situation. You know, no one has to be seized to go to a really cool party. They go because they want to, Daniel. Got any plans for the weekend? Well, I guess it depends. So bottom line, we don't nap, we share. That's what we do here at Stockholm. We person share. For who? What do they want? And the, hold your question till the end, please. And in legacy kidnapping, everyone talks about prisoners. We don't have prisoners. At Stockholm, we have superheroes. Every single person we take is a superhero. Think about it. You're escorted from your home, and people miss you. And you are so awesome that they are willing to send money just on the hope that they'll see you again. That's you. You did that. Give yourself a round of applause. I'm not playing your game. This is gaslighting. Nothing but gaslighting. Tell me things. I can't tell you everything, of course. The people who work with us on person shares don't tell us why. What kind of people? Oh, the usual. Mafias, few politicians' brothers. We do a lot with Bitcoin. And the guy who ran the Fire Festival is heavily involved. Well, Elliot and I don't know anyone like that. How'd we even get on their radar? How do you think? Facebook. Damn you, Cambridge Analytica. All right, so I'm not seeing a lot of info, but it can take up to three business days for our outreach team to actually log their ransom contacts. So all I can tell you is that typically by this point, an offer has been made to the superhero's family. So you'll be what, negotiating with Elliot? I can't tell you the specifics, but that is the procedure. If he's compliant, we'll have you in and out in a jiff. We may need to get a quick pic of you holding today's newspaper, but that's usually as far as it goes. I see.
Okay, so here's a thing I did. It's called Inventing Caught. People can go check that out. Um, it was a animated uh, sitcom that I wrote and uh, got about halfway through producing before I realized that animated sitcoms cost at the very least tens of thousands <laughs> yeah. of dollars to produce. And I didn't convince anyone to give me the money. So uh, it's called Inventing Caught, and it's about a young man with a uh, friend who is a miniature cow. Um, and he works in a science lab. And I wrote it before Rick and Morty happened. And then <laughs> Rick and Morty happened, sure and then I still had to produce it because I had those wheels working already. And it's not anything, actually anything like Rick and Morty, but I would never write it after Rick and Morty came out because it's just like on the surface, there's just too many similarities. But got, somehow tricked a bunch of uh, really talented people, including the aforementioned Jenny Goodbazal, into uh, doing voice work. If you go to inventingcot.tumblr.com, you can check that out. This episode featured Laura DeCesar and Will Kurtz. Original material, copyright 2019, all rights reserved. If you have any remarks on things that were said in this episode, send them to unreliablenarratorpodcast at gmail.com. Visit unreliable-narrator.com or Twitter at unarrator.